few months, and if I'm being honest, if we're all being honest, the past 16 months, really, and, uh, and maybe it's been longer than that since COVID started, whatever, whenever COVID started, uh, was unseen, uh, unexpected. Nobody trains you, which I don't have any ministry training anyway, so that, you know, but uh, nobody trains you for pandemics. And then especially nobody trains you for how a pandemic unmasks what is masked up before. And, uh, and here's what I mean, is that uh, a lot of what we have called relationship in the church has been um, facades. And when a pandemic happens and people are fighting over whether or not we should wear a mask and an election, fighting over whether or not we should get vaccinated, fighting over whether or not we should have church, fighting over whether or not we should have kids, and uh, everybody's brothers and sisters and in-laws sending me emails about why we don't have kids and why we don't have certain programs and why we're living out of fear and why we're not faithful. When that happens, um, nobody trains you for it. And so for, for 19 months, uh, if I'm being honest with you, I've had to deal head on with fear of man. And it is, it's, been, it's been interesting, to say the least. Very interesting, to say the least. And, um, and so I didn't realize until I rested this week on vacation, how much that had started affecting me. And, and this is family day, so y'all just like feel free to say hey or amen or, or I hate you or whatever. Um, I'm just kidding. So, um, uh, or, or I love you. Yeah, that'd be better. But for the past few months, like this is, and I noticed this when I started resting, and I shared a little bit of this with Jordan this week, but um, when we first started our church, I had this, this I, I mentioned this one, it's swag, that like I knew what we were called to do. I knew that like this is what the Lord had placed in us. I knew that we would do this even if three people showed up. We're doing this. Nobody's going to change it. And I had this about me. Well, over the past 19 months, what I realized is that in me, without me even knowing it, subconsciously started shifting into a place where because there was so much opposition, and I don't mean devil, I mean people, because there was so much opposition, um, something in me started making decisions just to avoid opposition. And um, nothing big. It's just I would avoid some things that I knew were very pertinent to this family because I knew what it would cost. And uh, I can tell you today that that is dead. And so there's a couple of things I want to give you a heads up on. Number one, we're about to go into some stuff we had never even dreamed we were going to have access to. That's number one. Number two, on the way there, you're going to be real mad at me. And, um, and when I say mad, not because I don't love you, but because I'm, I'm going to say some stuff, and I'm going to teach some stuff that flies in the face of maybe what you've been taught for the past 20 years. So, all that being said, let me... Um, but because I, and, I, and I said this before we prayed, but I've got one, I think I have one mission now in life, one mission. And that is when I'm dead, I want to be the domino that kicks over the Western system. My, that's my mission in life now. And uh, so to do that, I've got to face the Western system. So what do I mean by that? Uh, so this week I, re I read a book, and I shared this with some of you guys um, 
of the shack. I hate fiction books. I hate fiction books. I read for knowledge. That's the only reason I read um, any book. However, somebody shared this, this book with me and uh, this recommendation, I guess. And so I read it and it blew my world. How many of y'all have read that book? Like, I mean, it's, I know it's old school. I'm so late to the party. But anyway, I was reading this book Tuesday crying um, while Veda was taking a nap in a beach chair, just, just crying at the end of it. But here's what I've realized is that we, we have, we have s- seen God and ministry and fill in the blank as a system of measurement. And, um, and what I mean is this. Josephus and some other Jewish historians uh, tell the... the it depends on what you believe about Josephus and how accurate his history is and stuff like that. But in the antiquities of the Jews, which is, which is very heavily leaned on by scholars when looking at the Jewish people, they had a belief that Cain and Abel, you know the Cain and Abel story right after Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve's sons? Um, right after Cain killed Abel and the Lord shows up to Cain and, and kind of sends him off on his own, the Jewish tradition states, now again, I'm quoting Josephus in the Antiquities of the Jews. The Jewish tradition states that Cain at that point created what is now matured into our system of measurements. So before this happens, because remember, what's the story of Cain and Abel? Cain doesn't feel like he measures up to Abel and therefore kills him because he feels like he is, for me, not insecure. He doesn't measure up. So after the Cain and Abel story, if we're chasing this Jewish tradition, here I am out of my chair already. If we're chasing this Jewish tradition, Cain creates a system by which he can now measure up. Okay? We, all down the line, have inherited this system to to describe how we can measure up to everybody else's standards, mostly our own standard. So here's what I mean by that. In, In our culture, we judge success... For example, in our lives, based on uh, influence, right, the amount of people, we judge ministry success on the amount of people, right? Who cares if people are growing as long as our church is growing? That's what we judge. We judge our calling based on a really, really popular word right now, which I'm going to puke as I say this, but assignment. Josh, what are you called to do? I'm called to preach. No, no, no. You're called to be son. And by being son, you preach. But I could be just as fulfilled bagging groceries as I am up here on this stage today, as much as I love doing this. You know what I'm saying? So, So this is not my assignment. My assignment is his feet, and my assignment is my identity. And overflowing out of that is this. Right? But if this is my primary calling, then every time somebody shoots arrows, every time somebody knocks me down, every, every time somebody says, well, bro, I don't know about that, I don't disagree, all of a sudden, everything in me starts slumping into insecurity and depression and anxiety and all that stuff because my calling is found in what I do. And it was never designed to be that. Never. Your calling is who you are. He did not die on a cross so that you could do great things. He died on a cross so that you could become a great thing that you were before the foundations of the earth. And by becoming something great, you do great. But it's not the other way around. And this is what we have today. We have 
And I, I love that it's smaller today. Maybe a lot of people are watching online. Maybe not. I don't care. You know, so anyway. But what we have in our culture today is what I've been calling the grass is always greener syndrome. Well, well brother, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. Is that every single thing we do in our lives, we think doing something else is going to make us happy. And so every young person today under the age of 30, primarily, and if all y'all mostly are under that, not all, but a lot of y'all are under the age of 30. So I'm about to be 30, so I'm not going to be under that age. So anyway, we'll, we'll stay in a season for a year, maybe, be really excited about that. And when the newness wears off, we'll jump to something else. So we're always, and think about, think about this, we're always living in the future, looking ahead to what might come next, completely missing reality. The future is complete delusion. I don't know what's coming tomorrow. Right? Where I'm living right now is reality. That's it. That's what Jesus said. Worry about today. Tomorrow's got enough trouble. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So, so in our culture today, we, we don't live present. We always live in the future. Because of that, we never steward the present good because the present doesn't matter as long as I get to the grass that's greener over there. So, so I, wrote, I wrote on this. This is probably going to be in, in another book, but I've already written on this. But when you buy a plot of land that's been well taken care of, it's green. The, the grass is green. Right? So if you pull it in today, you see this field over here, it's full of flowers, it's full of all this other stuff because it's been taken care of. Right? So if I move my house to this plot of land, which would actually be really nice, but if I move my house there, the grass is going to be green for a while. But if I don't touch it, at some point it's all going to die. And then I've got to take my house and put it on another plot of land until it dies, and then take my house and put it on another plot. And this is where our culture is doing right now. This is what we're doing. And we're calling that our assignment. Nope. No, no, no. Here's your assignment, to water the grass. Uh, <laughs> right? Your assignment is to be rooted not in what you do, but to be rooted in who you are that begins to overflow into everything that you do. So you can manage, um, what's the, uh, Holly, what's the shop you're working at now? Clean juice, clean juice. You can manage clean juice and do just as much for the kingdom as if you got a microphone on a stage with a Bible preaching. But that doesn't, in today's standards, that's not the glamorous thing to do that's going to get you a million likes on Instagram. So we'll lay down what Holly's actually called to do, which is be a daughter there. We'll lay that down because we think what we're aiming at is what we're actually supposed to be doing. And the Lord's saying, stop worrying about what you're doing. Become something and what you do won't matter anymore. So the reason you're not fulfilled today, the reason you're depressed, the reason you're anxious, is not what you do. It's because something on the inside of you and your being is broken. I told you I was going to make you mad. 
So some, oh man, if I, just, if I just had a better job. Nope, it's not going to make you happier. If I just had a better relationship, well, that might make you happier. But, you know what I'm saying? It, but it, if I just did this, well, man, bro, I'd be so happy. No, you will not. If you're not happy right now, you'll never find happiness until you learn to be happy where you are. And then, and then what begins to happen is you begin to steward where you are so well that the Lord uses Scripture. The same measure that you use, it will be used for you. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. That's where that verse comes from. The verse is, if you, the Lord will give you a measure that is pressed down, shaken together, and running over, part B. The measure that you use, it will be measured to you. How you steward where you are right now directly affects what you're given to steward in another season. But if you're always looking ahead, you cannot wonder why the Lord is just not doing... Man, I, just, I don't know if the Lord's good. He, man, He's just keeping me right here in this job. I hate my boss. I hate, no, the reason the Lord's keeping you right here is if you can learn to be full here, you'll never find fulfillment in anything else. If the Lord released you to find fulfillment in another job, guess what? You wouldn't find fulfillment in Him. And God is good. You know, right? See, we, if I said, what does it mean for God to be good? Most of America, Christians, would say, the Lord's given me a good job, He's given me a good income, and i got a good retirement to sit on. But if you're lost and don't have a clue who you are, who cares? But if you know who you are, he'll give you all the other stuff. Money to God is nothing. To God, money is absolutely nothing. The reason the church is broke, the reason people in the church is broke, you ready? It's not because the Lord doesn't want to give. It's because he's giving us with the same measure that we've given to him. Right? That's what the tithe is. Half the people, you know what the average giving in America per month is per person in a church in America? 23 bucks. And we wonder why the church broke. And, it's, and, and listen, this isn't a workspace thing. It has nothing to do with your works. It has everything to do with who you are. If I know who I am, I'll give him everything he's everything I got. So we can leave 10% in the back burner and go on to 15 and 20 and 30 and 40% because we know. Who we are. It is a sign. Jesus said you would know a tree by its fruit. So when people see the fruit of our lives, particularly the Lord, it is a testament to how convinced we are of who we are. All right. So I told you I was going to just ramble. We, we're made for one thing. We were designed for one thing. And it's the spin. Here's, here's where we're going. If the spin is what spawned us, Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, let us make man in our image. That means that not only is our image in that, our fulfillment is also in that. So, when we step outside of the spin to find fulfillment in a relationship, this is why, I mean, this is why marriages fail. It's because they expect the other person to fill the holes that only Yahweh can fill, but they refuse to go to Yahweh to fill them. This is why people have intimacy issues. 
Because if Yahweh isn't fulfilling the intimacy within you, you'll start sleeping around and try to find the fulfillment of that intimacy that only he can feel. Which is why people are jumping around to relationship, 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 because nothing can fill it. But when you come to your senses and you realize who you are, all of a sudden, lo and behold, you're not running around trying to find other people to sleep around with. It's amazing how it happens, right? So if we're fulfilled by one thing, we're made for one thing, we then, and here's where we go, have to look at the system that we are, we're not in, but we grew up in, that tells us our fulfillment is in what we do. Everything I just said, y'all amen. So y'all telling on yourself. Y'all amen the whole thing. And I did that a little bit on purpose. Because now we have to look at a system called the American Western Church that tells us that our identity, identity is solely tethered to what we do. This is where we get the grass is always greener thing. It's, it's easier to run. It's easier to run than it is to become. It's easier for me to run from the process of finding my identity than it is to sit in the process of finding my identity. Because as long as I'm on the run, I can carry Adam with me. But when I sit at his feet, he refuses to let me carry Adam anymore. So this is why we have the majority of people in the church and pastors faking or running. People today are either running from the church or they're faking being excited about being in the church. How many pastors? Listen, I haven't shared... Do you know the statistics of pastors who committed suicide in the past year? You, you wouldn't believe it. Outrageous. In our neighborhood, we have seven, I think, pastors in our neighborhood. And uh, in our neighborhood, there's one church. I was talking to them at the pool one day. 80% of their people right now are brand new people. That means 80% of their church left during COVID. Th I mean, think about this. But... but but it's a twofold problem. It's people looking for the real Yahweh and the church refusing to go through the process to present the real Yahweh. So there's this rub where people are seeking to be found. The lost are not running from God. I believe they're trying to find God. They, don't, they may not know that, but I believe that's what they're searching for. What do you see all over the news? The past month, Pride Month, 12th Pride Month we've had all year. Don't know how that happens? Don't know how we've had 12 and it's only been six months, but I'm just kidding. I'm just a joke. Just, just a joke. You know what I'm saying? Do y'all ever think, seriously, like this is, I love, I love everybody. I love everybody. So does the Lord. But do y'all, this is totally random, but do you ever feel like we've had like Pride Month every month? You ever feel like that? In Columbia? My Lord. But anyway, <clears throat> that's totally, that's random. So we, uh, we just had this, this, this whole month. And all we saw, if you walk in Target, for example, the first thing you walk in and see is love. And it's all rainbow and the whole thing. What the earth is crying out for is love. What does 1 John say? I'm about to read it. God is love. They don't know that in the depths of who they are, something, I'll say Holy Spirit, 
is crying out, saying, I want to know who I am. Can somebody tell me? And the church is saying, we can't tell you who you are, but we can sure give you a list of things to do that will get you into heaven. And I'm, t- and I'm, I'm telling you right now, when we make the transition, here's two things are going to happen. Number one, the whole system's going to be so mad. I was about to say something with a P word. So mad that it's, gonna, it's going to throw every single thing it's got at this to stop it, number one. And number two, all of creation is going to start dancing because it can sense sons and daughters finally deciding and making the decision to be manifested in the image that they have within them. You and I are not searching for the image of God. We're not working so that we can grab hold of the image of God. You and I are in the image of God. Period. So the work that we have to do is lay down the works law and pick up the reconciled law of, Paul says it like this, the gospel should be so scandalous Paul, Paul has to throw in this caveat. He goes through Romans 5, which says, if all were dead in Adam, now all are alive in Christ. He goes through the whole thing of reconciliation. Romans 5 is brilliant, brilliant, and we hate it in America. We, we don't even talk about Romans 5 in America without a thousand caveats and horrible translations. But Romans 5, Romans 6, and then here's how he starts Romans 7. He has to throw in the caveat Well, now that all have been reconciled, should we just keep sinning? Certainly not. Any any gospel message that doesn't have to include the caveat, should now we just go on and sin since it doesn't matter anymore, is not the gospel. And you know how Paul responds? He says, certainly not. And then he goes through, and you know the reason he says we should not be in sin anymore? It's not because what we do affects that. It's because... That is dead. He came to seek and save that which was lost. John says, There comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, Hamartia, without form, the sin of the world. So, for us, Paul's saying, for us to live in sin is for us to live in an identity that is dead. So when he says, Should we keep sinning? Certainly not, so that grace may abound. Certainly not. Then he goes through and says, how can a dead man live? How can a dead man do works anymore? He can't. And then he goes into Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I mean, it's just brilliant how he does that. But he has to bring in this caveat. Should we? So when when we preach the gospel, people, such as the reconciled thing. I didn't get that. That's Paul. All reconciled. It's quoting Paul. When we preach that gospel, we should have to look at people and say, this is so freeing, so freeing, so untethered for a system, from a system. Should we, just keep, should we just go out and do whatever we want so that grace can abound? Certainly not. You're dead to that. I mean, how many times has that been a part of a gospel we've heard? I've heard repent or die, or repent or burn, or repent or... You're going to hell. And all that, you know what I'm saying? I've never heard you are so set free that you're going to have to make the decision to lay down something that's dead. Never heard that. I've heard I'm in chains to hell and I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to get out of those chains. 
I never heard you're not chained to hell. And here's the, here's the truth of it. Because of Christ being crucified from the foundations of the earth, you never were. There we go. All right. Just wanted to say that for everybody, just in case you weren't mad yet. Um, we, we are not, we as a church are not. I feel like this is more of a vision Sunday. So, we are not a postmodern American Western evangelical church. We are a kingdom hosting family, and we will proceed from now until eternity as such. Any measurement on this house in light of a Western American lens or way of thinking will 100% of the time disappoint. Light is the only definition for this family. Light. Let me read 1 John. 1 John 1, 1 through 7. I said I was going to read the God is love thing. I lied. I'm not. Uh, 1 John 1, and uh, I'm going to start at verse 1 and go to 7. Now, I want you to listen to this bad to the bone gospel right here. You ready? 1 John 1. Did you know, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, the early church fathers said that the apostle John was not planning on writing a gospel. The apostle John was not planning on writing a gospel. And towards the end of his life, his disciples, the people that followed John, the apostle, the beloved, convinced him to write a gospel because even by the end of his life, religion had started infiltrating the church. And so John pins his gospel and then later on pins 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as a way of saying, stop, this is the message that we've heard from the beginning. You're about to read it. Check this out. 1st John 1, we saw him with our very own eyes. Lord, uh, listen, listen to this language. We saw him with our very own eyes. We gazed upon him and we heard him speak. Our hands actually touched him the one who was from the beginning, the living expression of God. This life giver was made visible, and we have seen him. We testify to this truth. The eternal life giver lived face to face with the Father and has now dawned upon us. So we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard about this life giver so that we may share and enjoy this life together. For truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus, the Anointed One. Verse 4, we are writing these things to you because we want to release to you our fullness of joy. Now, check this out right here. You ready? Verse 5, this is the life-giving message that we heard Him share and it's still ringing in our ears. Now, Angela, you're going to like this. The word, Greek word for life-giving message is angelia. It means promise. And it's found two times in the New Testament, this word. Here is found one other time in the New Testament. It's related somatically, I'm reading the Dr. Simmons footnotes, um, to a word which means to evangelize or to preach the gospel. So, you could say it like this. This is the gospel we heard him share, and it's still ringing in our ears. Now, you ready? What's the gospel? And we now repeat his words to you. Now, what I'm about to read, you cannot find in any of the gospels. John is writing this and saying, 
This is the gospel that he preached to us. And then what he's about to say, you cannot find in any of the gospels. Interesting. Here's what he said, still ringing in our ears. God is pure light. Ready for this? You will never find even a trace of darkness in him. That's it. That's what we heard. <laughs> Ready? Here's, here's the gospel we heard. It's still ringing in our ears, and now I'm going to repeat the words to you. Here it is. Here's the gospel. God is light. You'll never find darkness in him. What about hell, brother? You're right? Because that's all we've preached. Repeat this prayer, you're burned. John's saying, here's the gospel that we received. And as I said, he wrote his gospel and the letters later on because he saw religion starting to put its hand on something that was pure. And he says, forget everything you've heard. This is the gospel he told us about. He is light. There's not one trace of darkness in him. And then Paul comes along beside him and said, not only that, there's not one trace of darkness in him. And guess what? You're joined with him. <laughs> okay. Verse 6. If we claim that we share life with him, ready? But keep walking in the realm of darkness, we're fooling ourselves and not living the truth. But if we keep living in the pure light that surrounds him, we share unbroken fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, continually cleanses us from all sin. This is unreal. He said, if we keep living in this light that he is, here's the fruit of it. You'll share unbroken fellowship with one another. Hey, denominations. Oh, I mean, sorry. I didn't mean to say that. Uh, right, huh? Huh? If, if we're living in the light, you can believe one thing. I can believe something slightly different. And we're still sharing complete unity and per, uh, perfect union in fellowship with one another because we're in the spin. Our relationship is not based on what we think is the truth about stuff that at the end of the day kind of does not matter. Our relationship is based on the fact that we're included in a spin that you couldn't get out of if you tried. Let me ask you this. How many of you believe Father, Son, and Spirit have a relationship that is filled with expectations that could be broken? No. So, if, me, if you and I are friends, which most we're friends, okay? So, Brandon. I'll use Brandon. Me, me and Brandon are friends, Okay? Uh, you're welcome. So, if Brandon comes up to me tomorrow and says, Josh, I hate everything you say. You're the worst. And I'm going to go tell everybody else that you're also the worst. Which has happened a lot of times this past year. Um, so that's a true story. But, um, not by Brandon. Not by Brandon. But some other God-loving people. So, um, if Brandon did that, okay, and then I responded by saying, you know what, fine then, we're not friends anymore. That would be a fruit that our relationship was based on an expectation. That if Brandon did this and this and this, we would still be friends. If he did not do this and this, we would not be friends. 
but Father, Son, and Spirit lives in a relationship with no expectations. How do I know this? Because Jesus came to reveal the Father. Jesus came to reveal what that spin looks like with one another. So when he knows Judas is about to betray him, what does he do? Judas, get out of my face. Or Judas, I'm going to wash your feet anyway. Right? Y'all real quiet now. So, so hold, ready? Holding a grudge is a sign that we're not living in the light. If I'm living in the light, there's no darkness within me or you. And if there's no darkness within me or you, then there is no space for disunity to come in. What does John also say? The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If something is stealing, if something is killing, and something is destroying, let me tell you who it ain't from. The Lord. So, so that's what, what we've had the past year. And this is why I say it. the Lord has taken pieces and move them out of the way so that he could put us in a position going into the fall that I'm you mark my words right now September is going to be wild for us wild I don't know what that looks like I'm hoping it looks like angels spinning around the room and us they're spinning around the room already you just can't see them so us being able to see them ready okay so if he said on earth as it is in heaven I'm not stopping until I see on earth as it is in heaven I, whatever that looks like y'all can stop I'm not you know what I'm saying? I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to stop at people walking in here, us be able to lay hands on them, and five hours later they'll be healed. I'm not going to stop until they pull into downtown Columbia. They don't even know they're sick and they're healed. You know what I'm saying? That's a healing ministry. And guess what? In that healing ministry, I can't post a video on Instagram saying I healed somebody. <laughs> All right. So there, you will never, John says, you'll never find even a trace of darkness in him. Never. Any gospel that includes darkness is wrong. Let me say, let me say it like this. Let me say it like this. Let me just read this, actually. This is from my book coming out in September. Let me read this. This is the best way I can say it. Uh, I'm, I wrote a chapter on childlike faith, but, but I, I wrote this. Uh, we, generically, have lost our, what I call, childness. It's kind of a child, childlike state. We've lost it. Our worship traded watercolor on a blank canvas for a weekly pious chore, and our prayers laid down exploration of our imagination for the disciplined act required by religion. When did wonder go from staring in awe of a burnt orange sunset to, for example, meeting our budget for the fiscal year. Or God go from Papa to an unapproachable, angry, distant, and uninterested deity. I suggest this shift took place over time through a blend of experience and religion. With every bully, disappointment, mess up, broken friendship, hellfire and brimstone sermon, and Sunday school lesson about Armageddon, we slowly took control of our lives, thus relinquishing the need to trust anyone, particularly God. As a child, God was Papa invested in our secret conversations about how stars stay in the sky without falling or how oceans never seem to flow past the beach. As a teenager, God was tolerant of sex-crazed thoughts and untamed lust. 
He was always disappointed, but because of Jesus, always forgiving. As an adult, God is a thought. A thought often drowned in a sea of emails, phone calls, texts, and social media. A thought entertained as an emergency last resort, but forgotten when things are good. Do you see the trend? The older we get, the more distant, disappointed, and uninterested God becomes to us. We assume He cares less and less about us, our lives, our dreams, and our ambitions. But there's one problem to all of this talk about God changing throughout our lives. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Over time, in our lives... Every time we were disappointed, every time we thought something was going to turn out like it did not, every time somebody did something to us that they shouldn't have done to us, every single time what we started to do is slowly take control. Because if we have control of it, we don't have to trust anybody. Because every time we trust somebody, it seems like we're let down. So over time, we take control, we take control, and what we don't see is because our relationships with each other mirrors our relationship with the Father. As we started relinquishing our ability to trust other people, particularly in the family of faith, we really stopped trusting God. So we started taking control of our lives. We started talking about what we do. We started talking about our assignments and our purpose and our calling and our ministry role and our jobs and our careers. And we started doing all this stuff because I control that. I control my calling. I do not control what I have become because of this. So there's got to be a point when we let go of all control and simply have the audacity to sit and receive. And that's something we do not do well. Everything in our lives, every single thing in our lives is about what we do. How do you become president? It's not about being a good person. You've got to know the system and beat the system better than anybody else to become the leader. I know there's people in this room that could be a better president than the past 10 presidents we've had. That's not a knock on anybody. But you know what I'm saying? We've got some brilliant people in the room that none of us will probably, unless the Lord changes things, which I think He might, ever have the opportunity to be in a position like that. You know why? Because none of us know the system. This is our, our whole culture. What does it take to become a great business person? Does it mean have great character, great integrity, treat people right? No. If you do that, you're probably going to go out of business and you're going to have a handful of local people that love you. But if you're going to make it to the top, you've got to steal, kill, and destroy. This is our system. And so the church has said, well, we can't win people which I have a lot of issue with that language too. You can't find that language in the Bible either. Win people? Yeah, but seriously, y'all go home and show me one verse in the Bible that Peter talks about going to win somebody. You know what it means to win? It means you're competing for somebody. People are not competition. I'm not in a competition for people. I'm not trying to win people. I'm trying to convince them of who they are. That requires love. I can win people all day long and not love them one iota. Now, I, can, I promise you, because I've done it, I, can get, I could get this room packed and get every single person in the room to repeat a prayer if I had enough money and enough marketing. I, I, can, I promise you I could do it. I've done it. I've been a part of it. But if we're going to love, 
marketing and money and inflatables are not going to do it. But in the meantime, so here's, here's what's going to have to happen, Lord. And then I'm going to go to Luke 15 and then we're done. <laughs> so, uh, but I got a lot on Luke 15, so y'all just hang with me. So hopefully you're good. It's low crowd, July 4th. Y'all going to be up doing fireworks tonight. I hate fireworks. I hate them. But um, before we had a baby, I liked them, but now I hate them. So anyway, but God bless everybody doing fireworks. So when we were, um, let me say like this. Every pastor is called to be a father. I'm not your, your, uh, your, your buddy. Okay? I love y'all. I think y'all are, but I'm, but I'm your spiritual dad. And so my dad is a friend of mine, but my dad is my dad. So a friend is typically not going to tell me what I need to hear. They're going to typically tell me what I want to hear because all friendships are based on expectations, which we're changing that as well. But my dad, I can't break away from being my dad's son. No matter what I do, I'm still my dad's son. So because of that, there's no expectation to break. I can't leave. If we're friends, then we can get to the place where we're not friends anymore. In a, well, in a worldly sense. In a Bible sense, you can't do that either. But, but in, a, in a cultural sense, you can. But my daughter cannot change the fact that she's my daughter. She can't. No matter what she does, she can't change it. So because of the fact that she can't change it, there's no expectation to break. Therefore, I can look my daughter in the eyes and say, I know who you are, and this ain't it. Right? So, so as, as a dad, I can look all of you in the eyes, and typically that means people I broke people's expectations, and they leave, and, and I probably wouldn't have made it anyway. But I can look you in the eyes and I can say, hey, I know who you are, and this, this is not it. However, however, I love you so much that I'll walk with you to the point where you believe you are who you actually are. That's what Tuesday nights are. I, and I love coming on Tuesday nights, but the primary reason I come on Tuesday nights is so that you can leave a little more convinced that you are who Yahweh says you are than you were before you got in there. That's the only reason we do Tuesday nights. Community is great. I love community. Community is an awesome thing. But I'm, to be honest with you, community's about 100 down my list of what I'm concerned about. <laughs> right, right? I'm concerned about your kingdom come. I'm concerned about transforming nations. I'm concerned about all of us becoming the identity that we were designed to become. And if that creates community, which this says, if we're living in the light, we'll have community. You can't create the community that is spawned off of all of us being convinced we're in the light. We could, we could work and work and work and work and work our tails off to create community, and it'll never be as pure as if all of us got convinced that the light that was in us has no shred of darkness in it, and then that grow a group of people together. The early church did not have community groups so that they could make sure they were in community. But they had a kingdom, and that kingdom created a community. So that's why I say, like, I love community. I think community is great and all that stuff. I, I am not a good community leader, and I never will be, and I'm going to try to be. And if, if you guys are in this room and you love community and want to lead that, you need to lead it. Not me. But 
as a family, what we're going to start to see is a community that none of us were ever able to produce in an inferior system because we're being convinced of who we are. It goes all the way back to what we said in the beginning, that if everything is about what we do, we'll never actually do anything great and we'll sure never become anything great. But if everything is about what we become, we'll get everything else as a cherry on top. So if we could be satisfied with the Lord using this space to sit us down and say, I am obsessed with you, and I'm going to tell you until you believe it. You know what would happen out of that? Community. Because then I'm going to start loving you, and you're going to start loving them, and you're going to start loving them with no expectation. And then we get in the spin. I mean, what does that look like? What does it look like for Kyle to be able to go to Evan and say, Evan... I love you, but I see this in you, and this is not who you are. And Evan be able to look at Kyle and say, thanks, man. That's awesome. Instead of, screw you, you know, or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, what does that look like? What does it look like for you to be able to come to me and say, the Lord showed me this, and not fear it being wrong? I hope you never feel that, but I know that's probably the case. Like, man, the Lord showed me this, and I want to share it with Josh, but I'm afraid this is going to be theologically wrong. Who cares? You know what I'm saying? Like We need to get in this place where there's zero expectation of relationship because he has zero expectation of ours. If we don't show up for a thousand years, he'll still show up a thousand and one years after that. No expectation. And in that, there's freedom. So I have a fear, had a fear of man issue because my whole life there was an expectation for me to be something or to do something, I should say rather than simply being satisfied with who I am and what flows out of that. So I've had very few relationships that are in a relationship with me just because they want to be in a relationship with me. I've had a lot of relationships where they're in a relationship with me because I could produce something really well. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? And what the Lord's calling us into is a whole community that is based on one thing. One thing. And that is, I love you because of who I know you are period. Spit in my face and I'll still love you. We, we, we Lord, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, how far do we go? Should, how far should we go? Y'all tell me. Okay. Y'all said it. We, last year, last year, we had division. You ready? You ready? We had division in this church. We had division over wanting to end racism. Y'all quiet. Hello? Who's going to end it? Sure ain't going to be the devil. He couldn't do it anyway. It's going to be us. We started it. We got married at the place where it was started. Do you know this? South Carolina. Right now, first, first state to secede from the union. Now, all the Presbyterian pastors got together at First Baptist Columbia and decided we're going to break away because Abraham Lincoln has just won the election and he's going to abolish slavery and we got to keep these people enslaved. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to break away from the union and we're going to create an entire system to make sure people stay enslaved. That's us. First Baptist Columbia, the table's still there. You can go see it. We started this. You better believe I'm going to finish it. Amen. I'll say amen. Y'all don't got to say amen. But we divided over that. 
I'm telling you what, if, if, we're, if we are going to get to that place, you ready? We are not doing the kingdom thing. We're doing something else. And I'm telling you right now, we're going to get to the place where we are in such community that we can have disagreements and still be completely unified. And if people are not interested in being in a community like that, this is really, really going to mess with people. Silla. All right. Luke 15. Luke 15. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. That just felt good. So I just, I just needed to say that. Luke 15. I'm going to show you something real quick and then we'll be, we'll be gone. Luke 15. And I'm going to start at verse 11. Very familiar, but I'm going to show you something I haven't showed you yet. Luke 15, verse 11. Then Jesus said, Once there was a father with two sons. The younger son came to his father and said, Father, don't you think it's time to give me a share of your estate that belongs to me? So the father went ahead and distributed, ready for this? He distributed among both sons their inheritance. The the older son didn't ask for it. He gave both. Shortly afterward, the younger son packed up all his belongings and traveled off to see the world. He journeyed to a far-off land where he soon wasted all he was given in a binge of extravagant and reckless living. With everything spent and nothing left, he grew hungry, for there was a severe famine in the land. So he begged a farmer in that country to hire him. The farmer hired him and sent him out to feed the pigs. Verse 16. The son was so famished he was willing to eat the slops given to the pigs because no one would feed him a thing. Now, there's a shift that happens here in the son. Humiliated, the son finally realized what he was doing, and he thought, this is what he thought, there are many workers at my father's house who have all the food they want with plenty to spare. They lack nothing. Why am I here dying of hunger, feeding these pigs and eating their slop? I want to go back to my father's house, and I'll say to him, Father, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I'll never be worthy to be called your son, but please treat me like an employee. Remember this. Verse 20, So the young son set off from home a long distance away. His father saw him coming dressed as a beggar. Great compassion swelled up in the father's heart um, for his son who was returning home. So the father raced out to meet him, swept him up, kissed him and hugged him dearly, and kissed him over and over with tender love, restored everything to him. Now, I'm going to jump down to verse 27. The servant replied to the older brother. He was out working in the field. He heard music. He asked what was going on. The servant told him this. It's your younger brother. He's returned home, and your father's throwing a party to celebrate his homecoming. The older son became angry and refused to go in and celebrate. So his father came out and pleaded with him, come and enjoy the feast with us. Then the son said, now you ready for this? I pointed this out earlier. The father gave both sons their inheritance. The older son would have received a double portion. So the older son was in possession with everything the father had back when the younger son had asked for the inheritance. Possibly years. Here's what he said. Father, listen, how many years have I been working like a slave for you, performing every duty you've asked as a faithful son? And I've never once disobeyed you, but you've never thrown a party for me because of my faithfulness. Never once. Listen, have you given me a goat that I could feast on and celebrate with my friends like he's doing now? But look at this son of yours. He comes back after wasting your wealth on prostitutes and reckless living. And here you are throwing a great feast to celebrate for him. Then the father said, My son, you are always with me by my side. Everything I have is yours to enjoy. It's only right to celebrate this, like this, and be overjoyed because this brother of yours was once dead and gone, but now he's alive, back with us again. He was lost, now he's found. Now, 
Here's what I want to point out. I didn't see this till last night. You ready? The younger son leaves home as a son, convinced he's a son, because he goes to the father and says, give me my inheritance. In the Greek, I've said this before, this is the equivalent to the son going to the father and saying, I wish you were already dead. Because he would get the inheritance when the father died. So the younger son goes to the father and says, give me what's coming to me. It's mine. Give it to me. And he leaves home rich and convinced that he is a son of the father. He goes out, wastes everything, starving, living in a famine land. And then he says to himself, because of what I have done, I could never deserve to be called a son So I'm going to go home and ask, beg to be a slave. Do you see this? The son sees what he has done as an indictment on who he is. Because of that, he starts to see himself not as a son anymore, but now as a slave. Not because the Father has called him that. Not because the Father said, if you go out and waste this, you won't be my son anymore. But because he has made a world in his mind that his works affect his identity. Complete non-reality. But he's operating as a slave all because of what he's done when the Father's sitting on the porch waiting for him to come home to make him a son again. That's wrong language. He's still a son. To restore his sonship to him. How many of us, now listen, how many of us have believed in a gospel or in an identity that what we do affects who we are? So we're qualified to be in a great relationship with the Lord if we've done this and this and this and this and this, but we're not qualified if we've done this and this and this and this and this. And the Father's saying, I see you the same no matter what you've done. So we create a world in our heads in which we are lower than who we really are, which is sons and daughters of God, despite what we've done. How can you say that? Because of this. Because if you're listening on a podcast, I'm pointing at a cross. Um, somebody said that last week. They're like, hey, you keep saying this. What are you talking about? The cross. So if that's the case, if that's the case, then what we have done is we have created an identity that isn't real based on a set of standards that likewise is not real. What we've really done is we've taken the new covenant and we've made it the old covenant. Just now, instead of having to sacrifice animals, we have Jesus' blood instead. That's what we've done. And Jesus came to fulfill or to bring to fulfillment the old covenant, not do away with, but to fill it so that now in Christ we fulfill it 100% by simply being in Him who has fulfilled the Old Covenant. This isn't doing away with the Old Covenant. This is saying you and I have fulfilled completely the entire Old Covenant, not because of what we've done, but because of being in this, the cross. Uh, This is massive stuff. So the son comes home. He runs to the father. The father runs to him. And he says the sinner's prayer. By the way, by the way, while you're looking in your Bible for the, for the winning the lost thing, while you're looking, I want you to also help find for me the sinner's prayer. It's, we completely, it's totally made up. Totally made it up. 
Well, brother, how are you supposed to win the lost? Maybe it's by being light. The Lord asked me this when we were in worship. We say, when I thought I lost me. No, no, no. I'm lost without you. I'm lost without you. This is the air I breathe. I'm lost without you. And the Lord said, what defines you being lost? Is it you running from me? Or is it me missing the peace you're designed to fill in me? We're not lost away from God. God has lost something that he will seek until he finds. Ready? Right? So here's how that shifts things. If people are running from God and they've got to earn their way back, we've got to win them to repeat a prayer that works their way back. If they are an invaluable piece that the Father refuses to live without, now we start seeing other people as an invaluable piece that we and the Father refuse to live without. How do we approach that differently? Now we'll start looking at people, and instead of saying, if you'll clean up and do this, you can come be a part of our club. And instead, we're going to look at people and say, this is who you are. I don't care how many people have told you you're trash. You're not. Not only are you valuable, you're the most valuable thing in the universe that he would give his son for. Lord, I wish wish y'all would get this. I wish you would. I know you are a little bit. Value decreased in the eyes of the redeemed heir, not the prodigal son. Because religion had given him a thinking that what you do is directly tied to who you are. Jesus, in this parable, shows us that not only was our value determined and solidified first, it was never affected by the darkness. What did I say a few weeks ago? Darkness has no ontological existence. So light creates a wave. Light exists. A light is a living ontologically, which is the study of existence. Light is an existing thing. It's a living thing. Darkness has no way. Darkness is, it doesn't exist ontologically, like scientifically. Okay, Darkness has no existence. So all that darkness is is an acknowledgement that light is missing. That's it. And not even that light is missing, that light is dimmer than it was designed to be. So if we turned off all the lights in this room, we would not be living ontologically in darkness. We'd be living in an absence of light. Absence of light and darkness are very, very different things. And you say, well, well Josh, sounds like it's the same to me. No, 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 no. One of, those, one of those is acknowledging something that actually doesn't exist. Darkness. The other one is acknowledging something that does exist that if we flipped all the lights back on would bring us into our designed illuminescence. And it's way too late for this, but, right? You know what I'm saying? So, let me ask you this. All throughout Scripture, man, I'm going to get in trouble for this, so don't take this further than I'm about to say this. We've, we've, we've said, talked about the devil in terms of darkness, have we not? Salah. The devil exists. But, yeah, but you know what I'm saying? Like, just hang with me. Um, I, well, let me say it like this. The devil's defeated. He, let me say it like this. He had authority. But he don't have it anymore. Well, brother, what about what I'm walking through? Right, listen. 
Jesus said, for the joy set before him, are they talking about Jesus? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. All the early church apostles, we know this, you read the book of Acts. When Peter and John are persecuted for the gospel, they come back rejoicing. Yes, we got persecuted, y'all. You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're excited. They're happy. They did not go, oh, Lord. I'm really going through a season right now. Like, man, yeah, just devil's on me. No. <laughs> if God is good, you ready? If God is good and God is light and there isn't a shred of darkness within him, now, you ready? Another thing we have to do is start questioning what we have called seasons. Man, I just, just, man, I'm going through it. I'm going through it. My daughter never goes through You know, you think about kids, my daughter never just goes through it. I mean, think about this for a second. My daughter is happy all the time. Except for like if we tell her she can't have ice cream or something like that. But like, but you know what I'm saying? But but she she never goes through a downtime. Bad Lord, I'm just dad. I'm just really just that was just really beating me. Right. No, she's always happy. If she's sick, she's still happy. She still plays. If we tell her no, she snaps out of it. She's still happy. She still plays. She figures it out. Like you know what I'm saying? On the car, we drove eight hours yesterday, and she was miserable the past two hours, the last two hours of the trip. However. We got home. It was like we never took the trip. But kids are living in the same world we're living in. Right? Amen? It's not like anything crazy. So how can a kid respond to the big bad world with joy? We respond to the big bad world by saying we're getting our teeth kicked in and we're going through a stormy season. Stormy sea, y'all, again, while you're looking for the other two things, show me where that is in the Bible too. Nope. Jesus said, in this world, you'll have trouble, but, but, take heart, I've overcome all the trouble. So I could be walking through, no kids, hell, I could be walking through hell with a smile on my face, not going through a stormy season. David says it like this. They will be like trees planted by streams of living water that bear fruit in every season. Top it all off. Their leaves will never wither. That's what David says in an inferior covenant. Uh, so the Lord's got to... Ri- so, so Josh, you're saying, I'm never going to go through anything bad? No, no, no. I'm saying everything you walk through, if you know God is good and all things work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, now you'll start seeing the things that you used to hate and say, praise the Lord, the Lord is bringing me into another measure of goodness. So the perspective really shifts. You see that? So now I'm not going to walk around moping and like, man, Lord, this is a terrible thing. I'm going to walk around with a smile on my face, the joy of the Lord being my strength, even if they're going to chop my head off for saying God is love, because they want to. The, the system hates God is love. God is wrath, we're good with. Newsflash, even his wrath is love. Right? But if we're walking around with our heads down, like we've just got our teeth kicked in, it is a lot. You did not get your teeth kicked in. The devil has no authority to kick your teeth in. Well, brother, what about spiritual warfare? That Nope, just stop doing that. 
You win. You won. Like, Lord, I, I, don't, know, I don't know how to teach this any clearer. The Bible teaches it, but I just don't know how. When did Paul do spiritual warfare? Even when he says our warfare is not flesh and blood, it's against principalities and strongholds, he does not say you're, you're supposed to sit around and fight principalities and strongholds. He says our victory being co-seated with Christ affects principalities and strongholds. What does he say when you put on the weapons, the armor of God? What does he say? He says it's truth. He says it's the word of God. He says it's righteousness. How many of those are going to be good for you if you're going into combat? None. What is he saying? He's saying, here's how you fight. You fight with the word of God, not with your fist. So when a lot, so, 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 if, if, if authority has been stripped from the devil, which it has, this, I mean, this, all authority has been given unto me, go. That's what Jesus said. Paul says it like this. Sin is a dethroned monarch, so quit living one second in submission to it. That's what Paul says, Colossians. Go read it. But if sin is a dethroned monarch, and the devil is defeated, now what is the job of the devil? You ready? If I'm defeated and I'm the devil, I'm going to try my best to convince as many people as possible that I'm actually not defeated. And this is what he's done. So the church is fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting something that is actually already defeated. If I wrote, it in, I wrote this in the book. I have a whole chapter on this, but... If the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl, who won the Super Bowl last year? The Buccaneers. They won't win it this year, so I'll use Kansas City Chiefs. If the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl, right, and then two weeks later started practicing to play in the Super Bowl, we would call them crazy because they already won the Super Bowl. They should be planning a parade to celebrate the fact that they are Super Bowl champions. <laughs> right? So maybe we should stop practicing to fight something that's already been defeated and start planning the celebration of the fact that you and I are seated on the throne with Christ. And what that means, if you want to get real theological, is that when Paul talks about multiple heavens, what it's talking about is dimensions. We are in the first heaven in Scripture. Principality, strongholds, the devil, whatever you want to call it, is in the second heaven. And then Christ and the Trinity and heaven and all that stuff is in the third. We are seated with Christ, which means every principality and stronghold is literally under our feet. So, so when we pray and when we worship, we're not praying from here up through that to get to Him. We're praying with Him down into the government of what's here until the government of that becomes the government of what's here and the increase of his government and peace never ends. And as we take what's there and bring it here, what happens in the process? Everything in between is also completely erased. And that's called new creation. New heaven, new earth, that's the wrath of God, that's judgment saying Evil is no longer allowed in the new creation, so it's going, as in the days of Noah, he says it like that. Jesus says that in Matthew. He says, you want to know about the end? It'll be as in the days of Noah. That's what he says. One will be taken and one will be left. Uh-oh, wait a second. Who was remaining in the days of Noah? The righteous. Huh? You know what I'm saying? So 
I'm looking forward to the end. I'm absolutely looking forward to it. I just believe it's happening right now. What he's doing is he's taking all the darkness and ripping it out of us. And you know how he's doing it? By shining a light in us that we have never allowed to be shined in us before. Man, 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 man. Okay, 1203. <clears throat> I literally only had two pages today, so this is, this is a lot, a lot of just riding. It's impossible. Matt, go ahead and come up here. It's impossible for you to get so dark that light becomes irrelevant. In fact, the darker you get, talking about the world, the smaller the light needed to illuminate that which is reality, who you really are. So if the world is getting quote-unquote darker, that for us is an opportunity for even the most seeming insignificant light source to illuminate the whole thing. That's what Jesus meant when he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's like the smallest of all the seeds. It starts small, but then grows into the biggest bush in the garden. That's what he's saying. He's saying that we're going to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. All this stuff that we've heard our whole lives that has just become mumbo-jumbo, it's, it's what the rabbis say, the lullaby effect, where you've heard something so often that you don't even, you're not even affected by it anymore. So when I say we're going to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, you're like, hey, man, it's great. Let's go to lunch. No. What a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden is that we become the light without a shred of darkness within us. That darkness, here, let me just read it. Let me just read it. Lord, 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 help us. I'm, I'm about to explode up here and there's only 10 people. Jesus, Jesus, John said it like this. He said, uh, the living expression in the beginning was a living expression. He was with God. He was fully God. He was together face to face. They were together face to face in the beginning. Through his creative inspiration, the living expression made all things. Nothing existed apart from him. Life came into being because of him. His life is light for all humanity. His life is light for who? All humanity. And this living expression is the light that burst through the gloom or the darkness, depending on what you're reading. Now remember, John wrote this. They said, John, can you please write us a gospel or can you write us a set of writings to make sure this stays pure? And John writes. And when he sits down to write, he had to have the thought process, how are we going to start this? Are we going to start it with his family lineage like Matthew did or, or Luke? Are we going to start this with the birth? No, 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 no. We got to go way further than that. In the very beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. He was God face to face. Through Him, everything was made. Apart from Him, nothing has existed. Life came into being because of Him, and His life is light for every single human being. And this living expression is the light that burst through the gloom the light, ready? The light that darkness could not diminish. The other way to say that, most of your Bibles say that the darkness could not comprehend it. Another translation says, could not overcome it. This living expression is the light that bursts through the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. You want to know what my eschatology is, theology about the end? Here it is. 
He is light and the darkness cannot overcome it. I, and I'm, I'm gonna say, I hate talking about myself, but, but I will not be a pastor. I, pro- I can promise you this, who people pleases his way to influence. I promise you, I'm, I will never be a pastor that people pleases his way to influence. I don't care about influence. I used to. I used to care a lot about influence. Now I don't care. I'm wearing a dad shirt today. Right? You know why? You want to know what I care about? I care about this. I care about that girl and kids right now. That's what I care about. I care about y'all. I care about this man. If there's three people, I care about you guys. I don't care about influence. If it were up to me and people would show up consistently, I'd take that camera and throw it out the window. And we might in the fall. Right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. But... You know what I'm saying? I, but I don't, I don't care about influence. But here's what I can promise you I will be. I will be, and I'm going to say this is going to make everything in a lot of people very angry. So here we go. I will be your apostle who makes sure that you can never say you did not know who you were, who you are or who he is. Apostle is the least religious term of all the offices. We got, Christians got the term apostle. Jesus got the term apostle from Rome. That when Rome conquered a territory, they would send an apostle there to cultivate it, to look and taste and feel and sound just like every other province of Rome. That's what apostle was. So when he sends apostles, he's sending kingdom people with a blueprint into an area that does not have the blueprint to culturalize it into the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. So what I promise you, I, can, I promise you I will be that. And I will make sure, make sure that you or I will never be able to say that you did not know who you are or who he is. I promise you, you stick around long enough and you'll never be able to say you didn't know who you are. I, can't, I cannot determine whether or not you accept who you are. But I promise you, you will never die of ignorance of who you are. Because I'm going to tell you who you are. You're the righteousness of God. You're the head and not the tail. You're the first, not the last. You are the one that he became sin for so that you might become the righteousness of God without doing a thing. You are the coin that he turned every couch over in the house to find, even though he had a bunch of other ones. You're the sheep. You're the sheep that he left every single thing that he had to make sure he didn't have to live without you. He had 99 others. At the end of the day, would you even notice if one out of 100 was gone? Probably not. Yet he left every single one of them to make sure not one was missing out of the fold. You're, You're the son who left home, or the daughter, who left home and wasted every single thing that you were given, and yet he still calls you son or daughter. That's how valuable you are. Because of this, because of this, what we're about to go through in the near future is 100% orthodox and 0% American consumerism. I mean Christianity. We're not going to do the American consumer thing. 
where I convince you to show up to church if I give away enough things or I give you enough reason to show up to church. If Jesus isn't enough reason, then there's nothing else that's going to be enough reason. I'm not, I'm not going to call you to convince you to tithe. I never have done that, and I never will. You either believe and trust enough to tithe or you don't. I'm not going to try to convince that. What I am going to try to teach you is who you are. Hopefully y'all are okay with that. I'm great with that. So let me say one thing about uh, unity, and then we're going we're gonna to end up praying. The reason that we don't love each other, and I said this earlier, but I just want just to end with this. The reason we don't love each other correctly, and I'm saying that generically, not here, is because we really don't know what real love is. Because we've never in the West been fully introduced to Yahweh, who is just love. That is no caveat. John, when he's trying to describe what God is, he comes up with two words. Light, that darkness is not found within, and love. Love, that I'm going to add to this, that hate is not found within. We're, we're going to be a family who knows how to disagree well. And I've said that for a while now. And we still have people who disagree and feel like they can go somewhere else where they don't have to tell anything about truth so they won't disagree with anybody else. And I'm telling you, we're going to be a family that learns how to disagree and still be joined in one pursuit. You don't have to agree with me on everything. You really don't. I'm probably right. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But um, that was a joke. That was a joke. You might be right, but that's why we need this. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, we need this family. You don't have to. The Holy Spirit might show you something. I'm going to say with Apostle Nolan Ball, who most of y'all have never heard of, but I only know of him because of one of my, my just gr- the greatest men that have ever led me into some of this stuff. Damon Thompson has given me so much permission. But he said that, that Nolan Ball, his spiritual grandfather, used to say when people would come to him and say, can you explain what you said? He would say, I trust the Holy Spirit within you to teach it to you. So from now on, I love that answer. That'll be my answer too. Like I'll, I'll do what I can, but at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit's gonna have to give each of us a revelation of what this stuff is. He was like, well, Josh, I don't know if I agree on that. Take it to the Holy Spirit and pray on this and read 1 John and tell me if the Holy Spirit doesn't tell you, yep, that's it. And if he doesn't, please come tell me. Yahweh wants to show us who he really is, but the first step is to die to who he is not. And I'm going to end with this. The older son, and I said this Tuesday, I think, last Tuesday. The older son is mad when the younger son comes home and the dad's throwing a party for him. He's mad. And the reason he's mad is he says, I have worked, I have performed I have done all of this stuff and you've never given me anything. And the dad says, son, everything I own is yours. When the son, younger son left home, he gave the older son his whole inheritance. The older son is mad because he sees the younger son receiving what he has worked so hard to receive, but he already had. This is, 
This is what I think I wrote this in this book, or maybe I've said it. This is religion. Here's a definition. Is working to do all the things to get the main thing and never getting the main thing without ever getting the main thing. It's striving to earn the main thing while in reality you already hold the main thing. That's why so many people in ministry burn out. It's because they're working to achieve something that they're not seeing themselves achieve because they've actually already achieved it. They just need to be awakened to the fact that they've achieved it. I've had ministry success. You know why? Because for four years, we have been unwavering in what the Lord has called us to. Unwavering. That's success. Have we grown a megachurch? Depends on what you define as a megachurch. Because I see people around here who are becoming very mega people. So yes. So I'm going to pray. And here's what I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that the Lord would end. I felt this this morning. And, um, and I just feel like I, uh, I really just need to nip this in the bud for all of us right now. So here's what I feel like the Lord wants to do in us. I feel like the Lord wants to end fear of man. And I know this is kind of random, um, but it's not. Fear of man, this week the Lord showed me, for me personally, fear of man is the root, is the root cause of broken identity. Fear of man. It's, It's being afraid that if you do something that flies in the face or you believe something or you hear something that flies in the face of the majority of the culture around you, that you'll be judged for it. Fear of man. And so you start editing things that the Lord never told you to edit just because you're afraid of other people's opinions. And I believe the Lord really wants to end that today in a lot of us. So Lord, I pray, even for those watching this right now, I pray that you would end fear of man in us right now in Jesus' name. End what it means to fear everybody else's opinions and introduce us in the process to what it means to live free of every other opinion except for the one that was determined before we were in our mother's womb. We don't have to fear man as long as we are in the spin, staring in the eyes of Father, Son, and Spirit day in and day out. So Lord, I I end it right now. As a father in Columbia, South Carolina, I end that in our family. We will not fear man. And here's what I speak over this family going into this next season. I speak over us a unity that we have never, not just dreamed of. I don't know if we've ever seen since Acts. A unity where there is zero expectation to be something that benefits me and instead is 100% submissive to the other for the simple enjoyment of the other's company. That's that's what family we're going to be. We're going to be a family that knows how to love each other as Christ has loved us. There's no competition. There's no this person's doing that and this person is not. There's no this person's not doing this for me and therefore I'm going to cut that off. There's no, hey, here we go. There's no gossip. There's no dishonoring. There's no talking behind each other's backs. 
There's none of that. There's no, here we go. Here, there's no clicks. Because if we're in this for the simple enjoyment of each other's company, then I'm going to find my way into every single person in the family that has the company to offer me for my enjoyment. Not for the expectation of what they can give me, but for the expectation of the joy that is before us in a family that is mutually submissive to one another, just for the joy of each other's company. I love coming in this room not to preach and not to hear somebody else preach and not to do great music. I love coming in this room because I feel like when I come in this room, the only expectation of me in this room is for me to be me. And that is a sign that we're starting to see the light. So forgive us for anything that we've done that doesn't match up with that, but bring us into alignment for what does. So Lord, we love you and honor you in your name. Amen.